university talks given during the uh, winter retreat of 1988 here at Amravati. So this is continuing, we're about halfway through the talk, only one breath. And if you remember at the beginning, Lumpur uh, Sumato was emphasizing how the, um, uh, the practice of Anapanasati was only one breath. And as he said, uh, 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 began by saying, Venerable Subhato told me that he had never developed Anapanasati, mindfulness of the breath. So I said, can you be mindful of one inhalation? And he said, oh yes. And of one exhalation? And he said, yes. And I said, got it. There's nothing more to it than that. So uh, the, on that theme, we're now about halfway through. And this... Um, begins with a um, just a continuing along. I think the very last thing that we were talking about was uh, how everything is teaching us, which is one of the main tenets of uh, Lumpur Cha's, um, say, uh, life and teachings that it's not just the uh, individual um, special practices like um, mindfulness of breathing but also all the other aspects and elements of our living situation and our field of experience that uh, if we're wise everything will teach us the uh, the uh, the ailments of the body the uh, qualities of concentration the qualities of scatteredness and so on if we're wise everything will teach us So, to begin. In each moment, it is as it is. With just one inhalation at this moment, it's this way. It's not like yesterday's inhalation. You're not thinking of yesterday's inhalation and exhalation while you inhale and exhale now. You're with it completely as it is. So, you establish that. The reflective ability is based on establishing your awareness in the way it is now, rather than having some idea of what you'd like to get and then trying to get it in the here and now. Trying to get yesterday's blissful feeling in the here and now means you're not aware of the way it is now. You're not with it. Even if you're doing anapanasati, with the hope of getting the results that you had yesterday, that will make it impossible for that result to happen. One of the aspects of this is when uh, we talk about um, establishing your awareness in the way it is now, uh, because we tend to think so quickly, thought arises very, very fast, often we, uh, we consider awareness or knowing uh, to be, uh, in a way, a mental, act, a mental activity based around thought, so that um, the, the mind thinking the words, this is the way it is, or I'm aware of the breath. But uh, one of the most essential aspects of the practice, and, and something that Lumpur Sumato emphasizes uh, again and again and again nowadays, is that awareness is not a thought. It's not a conceptual activity. Uh, awareness is wordless. It's a quality of, of knowing that has no words. So we can tack onto it the words like, yeah, there is knowing, or this is the way it is, or that that kind of mental framing, or, or say labeling of the experience can be done and can help to clarify that quality. But awareness itself is totally wordless. It's not constructed, it's not formed, it doesn't, it's not based around a, a language. 
or an identity. It's a quality like like gravity. It's a um, a natural aspect of the uh, the experiential world. It's the very core, the very heart of the experiential world. And uh, so when we talk about being aware, it's not just uh, having an idea about or, or labeling or, or naming, but it's that wordless knowing quality itself. That's the, the real essence of, uh, of awareness. So to continue. Once Venerable Vipassi was meditating in the shrine room and someone else was making quite distracting noises. Talking to him about it, I was quite impressed because he said he first felt annoyed, but then decided the noises would be part of his practice. So he opened his mind to the meditation hall with everything in it. The noises, the silence, the whole thing. That's wisdom. If the noise is something you can stop, like a door banging in the wind, then stop it. Close the door. If it's something that you have control over, you can do that. But you have no control over much of life. You have no right to ask everything to be silent for my meditation. When there's reflection, instead of having a little mind that has to have total silence and special conditions, you have a big mind that, contain, that can contain the whole of it. The noises, the disruptions, the silence, the bliss, the restlessness, the pain. The mind is all-embracing rather than specializing in a certain refinement of consciousness. Then you develop flexibility, because you can concentrate your mind. This is where wisdom is needed for real development. It's through wisdom that we develop, not through willpower or controlling or manipulating environmental conditions, getting rid of the things that we don't want and trying to set ourselves up so that we can follow this desire to achieve and attain. So reading this uh, passage about uh, Venerable Vipassi, who was... Um, one of the uh, the monks in the community uh, at Amravati at that time, it reminded me of a, a very early retreat, uh, one of the very first retreats that I, that I ever did with Lumpur Sumato in uh, the um, the beginning of life at, at Chithurst. I think it was probably something like January of 1980 uh, during that that winter time, maybe a little bit later in the year. But we were having a, a two week long community retreat. And at that time, the house was a real wreck. So the, the only room that was really habitable was now what is the reception room. So the, what's now the shrine room in the house um, had a, a big hole in the floor that, that had been eaten away by dry rot. And so that uh, and it needed fixing up. So that was, that was done the following year, 1981, I believe. So we were all crowded into the reception room. And, and it was quite a crowd. That was the monks, the nuns, uh, the you know, Anagarikas, lay people, everybody, about 25 people were in that, that room together. And so uh, where, where I was sitting, there was an Anagarika who was about as far away from me as this microphone is. And uh, he had extremely loud uh, breath. And when he was concentrating, when he was focused, then his breath became extremely uh, noticeable. Uh, when he got distracted, then his breath would go quiet. But he was quite good at concentration. <laughs> so so uh, for a long time during the meditation, you know, I'd be getting annoyed with uh, hearing him with this... Oops, I don't want to sneeze or anything. I don't want to get too graphic and snotty. So excuse me. Excuse me for that. Anyway, you, you get the point. So he was breathing very, very loudly. 
So rather like uh, Tanvi Pasi, after a little while of this and realizing, well, you know, actually his breath is much more noticeable than mine is. So why don't I just do Anapanasati with his breath rather than mine? And so that's what I did. And then I was quite happy. It was quite, just, uh, it was much easier to concentrate because he, he, uh, he made such a, a sort of continuous and steady noise. Except, as I said, when uh, he occasionally got distracted, his, his breath would go quiet. But most of the time it was quite pronounced and noticeable. So it was a, a um, sort of anapanasati by an external nose. Uh, with, uh, there's, no, uh, there's no kind of a description of that in the Pali. But um, anyway, it's sort of mindfulness of somebody else's body. Or, uh, but it, it worked. It worked. Um, also, um, probably most of you are familiar with the story uh, that uh, uh, it was much used in Lumpur Cha's teachings of how, uh, in his own practice as a as a young monk, when he was on the, uh, a, a long tudong, traveling through the countryside and living in the in the forests in remote remote places in Thailand in his early years, uh, one time he was sitting in the forest and they were having a festival in the village and a lot of the the noise the music playing from the the village was was rattling through the the forest night and um and he was sitting there under his glot his mosquito net and uh, and then these grumbling uh, irritated thoughts were going through his mind like you know, don't they know there's a monk meditating i come through the village every morning i've been camped here for weeks and they know i'm around and don't they realize how much bad karma they're making through uh, interrupting my meditation that kind of grumble, grumble, grumble uh, attitude that we can have. And then he had this very profound insight, which he, he drew upon many, many times um, over the years, uh, which was, uh, well, here I am sitting in the forest and there's annoyance. Uh, the ear is the air vibrating, the air uh, hits the, uh, the eardrum and vibrates it, and so I hear noise. Yeah, but the only annoyance, the only problem with that is coming from my mind. The, the 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 sound is just what it is. The air is just what it is. The, you know, the, these are just aspects of nature. The only thing that causes causes it a problem is, is my mind. So it's not the sound annoying me. It's actually me annoying the sound. And uh, that uh, was a very very helpful and profound insight because we can often blame things, not just sounds, but uh, other people in our lives. <laughs> illnesses if only i didn't have this bad knee if only i didn't have this headache if only i didn't have this uh, family strife if only i was living in a different monastery if only i was uh, if only i became a nun or a monk or if only i stopped becoming stopped being a nun or a monk then 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 when i didn't have to deal with this particular set of perceptions yeah, everything would be all right and it's, it's a simple insight based around something like external noise, like say hearing a machine or a music or somebody breathing or, or um, uh, whatever, someone who decides they, they want to wear their nylon anorak in the, uh, in the temple. <laughs> Lumpur Sumedha often gave extensive discourses involving nylon anoraks and <laughs> nylon clothing and the effect that could have on the atmosphere. But uh, everything relies upon attitude. Uh, and this is, it's a simple insight, but it's extraordinarily penetrative. It really cuts right to, to the, the, the depth of the way the mind uh, relates to the sensory world, the, to the experiential field. And so that if we see that you know, everything hinges upon attitude, then even if you have a very difficult person living in, the, in close proximity to you, 
um, you have a lot of noise around, you have a, a chronic illness, you have a difficult aches and pains or um, uh, physical obstructions, uh, whatever it might be, if we remember that, oh, it all hinges around the attitude, that's that's really where the the, the difference can be made. As Lumpur said, if there's a banging door, you can get up and close it. If there's an illness that can be treated, then you can treat it. But if it's not treatable, if uh, if your dodgy knee is not is not fixable, then you realize, well, this knee is going to be bad for for the for the duration. So, can I learn how not to make a problem out of it? Can I learn to to not um, create annoyance around it? That it's so that. Uh, Rather than say, oh, the knee is my problem, or the neighbor is my problem, or uh, the uh, my family is my problem, to see that uh, it all hinges upon attitude, and that if the attitude can be skillful, and again, going back to that, everything is teaching us, if we can say, uh, look at that and feel that, then even if there's a loud racket going on, like a lot of noise from the village, you can find perfect silence within yourself. The, the mind that knows a sickly body is not sick. And again, in another very well-known teaching where the Buddha was talking to um, an, a very elderly disciple of his called Nakula Pitta, who was uh, by uh, reputation, uh, uh, I think, over 100 years old, and full of aches and pains and, and very decrepit in his body, the Buddha said very simply, it's better to be afflicted in body and not afflicted in mind than afflicted in mind and not afflicted in body. And then gave him uh, the... Uh, so an extensive recitation of the uh, Anattalakana Sutta, the teaching on, on not-self. So it's a simple insight, uh, and uh, it's particularly challenging when we've got a really good reason to complain. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, you're, you're totally justified in being irritated by that noise or that, uh, uh, that person or that thing, that, that aspect of, of the world. Um, that's when it gets most challenging. But... Essentially, uh, uh, if we bring it, uh, bring the attention inwardly, we see that even things that it's reasonable com to complain about, it's this mind that makes it into a problem. Uh, if it doesn't make it a problem, then it becomes an interesting, an interesting challenge. Or, a, hmm, that's a that's a puzzle, isn't it? <laughs> how how are we going to solve that one? Or, or, or what's what's the best way of working with this uh, this thing that that is that is exactly what I didn't want. So uh, and that's a, a very important insight and uh, very worth bringing at, at attention to. Any questions, thoughts, reflections? Yes, Virginia. Maybe in terms of um, what kind of uh, qualities of mind can help um, to be less irritable because it seems that um, if you cultivate in the right way then yes you can embrace many things but if in daily activity you kind of stretched very much very goal oriented then everything that goes on the way will be irritating <laughs> so, uh, well uh, the short answer is more mindfulness and wisdom yeah, seriously. I mean, that's just that's about it, really. Because the more that we get to know our reactive patterns, but, you know, and then, th see, everyone's different, so that different things will be easier to get perspective on than others. So that maybe noise is not a problem for you, 
um, that you can things can be as loud as they like, or you could be hot, or you can be cold. You know, no, no big thing. You know, you can you can maintain a perspective on that, and you say, oh, I don't have to make a problem out of this. This is easy. But then, if somebody criticizes you and says, Anagarika Evgenia, you are really useless. <gasps> I'm just making that up. Yeah. Um, but then, wham! You know, you, that can really hit you, and then you can be carrying that around for days. Oh, okay. That's something. So hot and cold, no problem. Lots of noise or silence, yeah, no problem. I can deal with that. Praise and criticism, okay, that's a sore point. So that's where I need to bring attention. So kind of what they call atanyuta, getting to know your own personality, getting to know your own character, the things that um, make the mind react, either with excitement uh, and, uh, wow, that's really great, I want more of that. Or, how could they do that? That's so terrible, that's so, uh, so unbearable. You know, things that are painful or challenging or things that are frightening. So getting to know your own character and seeing where those, those reactions are really, really fast and take a long time to fade away, then that's where we need to bring attention. So, and you know, community life is very good for that because we get a, a big range of different experiences, uh, you know, different things that we have to deal with in the course of a day. But when you see that there's a sore spot or an area where the mind gets really carried away, like, oh, food, yes, yeah, yeah this is good. Or like, oh, criticism, that's terrible, oh, I can't bear it. Um, then that, um, that sense of mindfulness and wisdom, knowing, okay, I have to bring attention to this, and then using that in the meditation. So if you see that the mind has heavily reacted to something, like you've been carried away with food or got excited about that, or you're very worried about something, that you're very anxious, or you're, you're feeling hurt, or, then you, in the meditation you deliberately bring that in, that particular incident or just what somebody said or what you just did, and bring that consciously in and say, oh, look, this is a, uh, this is a, a mental reaction, it feels this way. So you're using the practice to explore that reactive pattern. And the more you can look at it in sort of the coolness, quietness of meditation, you, you don't have to relate to it in a personal way. You can look at it as a mental event. You can replay it sort of slowly. You can revisit it. You can kind of explore it from different sides. It's, it, it's, a, uh, it's then much more easy to get to know that that pattern of reactivity. It might not, really, you know, it might not be apparent where it's coming from. You might think, "Why am I so afraid of that?" Or, you know, "Why does that make me worried?" Or, "Why do, why do I get so excited by that?" And nine times out of ten, we won't be able to see where it comes from. Usually, it's like, "Oh, I don't know," but that's okay. You, you know, as long as you see that, oh, that's the pattern that happens. So then you're developing that yoniso manasikara, that investigation, the uh, dhamma vijaya, you're kind of exploring it, getting to know it. So when it happens in a live situation and you think, oh, it's that worried feeling again. Now, you know, what was it that caused that? Where's this coming from? Or, or what am I doing with this now? So then over time, and it takes a, a long time and multiple, multiple, multiple repetitions, infinite patience as usual, <laughs> Uh, then you slowly but surely you get to know that reactive pattern. So whether it's worry or excitement or, or you know, fear or aversion or or uh, your uh, anger, whatever it might be, 
that um, uh, that gets more uh, known as an object and not sort of who and what you are. Okay. To, to continue. Desire is insidious. That means it it sneaks in and makes itself at home without being able to be noticed. Desire is insidious. When we're aware that our intention is to attain some state, that's a desire. So we let it go. If we're sitting here with even a desire to attain the first jhana, we recognize that this is that this desire will be the very thing that will prevent its fulfillment. So we let go of the desire, which doesn't mean not doing anapanasati, but changing our attitude to it. So what can we do now? Develop mindfulness of one inhalation. Most of us can do that. Most human beings have enough concentration to be concentrated from the beginning of an inhalation to the end of it. But if your concentration span is so weak that you can't even make it to the end, that's all right. At least you can get to the middle, maybe. That's better than if you give up totally or never try it at all. Because at least you're composing the mind for one second, and that's the beginning. You learn to compose and collect the mind around one thing. Like the breath. And sustain it for the length of one inhalation. Or if not, then half an inhalation. Or a quarter. Or whatever. At least you have started, and you must try to develop a mind that's glad at just being able to do that much, rather than being critical because you haven't attained the first jhana or the fourth. Well, this uh, here, what I feel this is uh, really pointing to is, uh, and I think, <laughs> if I can remember correctly, uh, during the um, one of the previous readings, we talked about the difference between chanda and tanha. So chanda is interest or enthusiasm. It's that, uh, say, uh, ability of the mind to be pointed in a particular direction. So when Nupo says, uh, we let go of the desire, the tanha, the craving, which doesn't mean not doing anapanasati, but changing our attitude to it. So chanda is to do with uh, being interested to concentrate, being interested to focus the attention, being interested to follow the breath as a method of, of developing that, that concentration. But chanda is interest, but uh, that interest can be free of any kind of obstructive quality. It can be very, uh, very much completely in tune with Dhamma. Uh, so uh, having the interest to do it, putting energy into doing it, um, and then developing the, the quality of wisdom um, that uh, uh, work, that works with the concentrating pro concentrative process that can all be done uh, with a, a basis of chanda, with that sense of, of wholesome interest and enthusiasm. Uh, tanha is where it's saying, "I've got to get first jhana, or I've got to get concentrated. I've got to get rid of my chattering thoughts. Yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm going to succeed." All of that, I'm gonna, I've got to, I must, I've, I have to get rid of, and so on. So uh, chanda, uh, it can be tied up with, with uh, sense desire and unwholesome qualities, but uh, it, it, uh, it doesn't have to be. And so that changing the attitude uh, in terms of meditation is, yes, you're interested to concentrate, like you're, you might be interested to go for a, a walk, 
to um, Little Gadsden Church. You know, you walk down St Margaret's Lane and cross the fields and get to uh, get to Little Gadsden Church after a couple of miles. It doesn't have to be an obsession. You know, you don't have to be driven towards it. You can just be out enjoying the walk on a beautiful spring afternoon, uh, so that the body's still moving, the legs are still pacing along. Uh, there's there's a direction that's being given, but it's not a thing I have to accomplish. It's not I've got to get there as some kind of uh, obsessive goal, but uh, the energy is being applied, the direction is being, being followed, the interest is there, the, and the walk continues, and then you enjoy the walk and you get to Little Gadsden Church. So um, there's a, a whole different tone to uh, action and effort that is based on, on chanda, and, and dhamma chanda, the kind of, uh, that interest that's in tune with dhamma, and tanha, and tanha has always uh, got some kind of of uh, obstructive, destructive quality to it. Tanha is always conducive to um, the development of self-view and always produces dukkha. That's why the Buddha labeled tanha, craving, as the cause of, of dukkha. So that, uh, in a way, a lot of our practice is to do with recognizing how to work with chanda rather than tanha. Or if tanha is there, the I gotta, I should, I must, I want... Um, that kind of self-centered obsessiveness to get to know the tone of that, the f the feeling of that, and to let it go, and to learn how to act and to to engage in the practice, like just following one breath at a time. You're you're interested in it. You're you're doing work, but it's work that's based um, on on interest, on say attunement to to dhamma, uh, and uh, with a, an interest in in peace and freedom, liberation rather than an obsession of I've got to get this, I've got to, I've got to get rid of that. So there's a, a very different tone. So along with getting to know your own personality uh, as part of the practice, getting to know that the, the, the difference between tanha and chanda. Um, those of you who are familiar with English hedgerows, uh, it's, it's springtime now, so the, the nettles haven't quite come up yet. It's, I see there's a few daffodils and things, but... A little bit later on in the year, you get two kinds of nettles that grow in the English countryside. One is called the stinging nettle, and the other is called the dead nettle. So the stinging nettle, predictably, stings. <laughs> so if you touch the leaves, uh, and then you you get a, a sting from the uh, from the uh, from the contact of the of touching the plant. The dead nettle, the leaves are, are almost an identical shape. They also have little white flowers when, when the flowers are, are in season, and they don't sting. But they often are growing in the same hedgerows, in the same uh, parts of, the, uh, of the, the garden or the countryside. They're often, you see them side by side, but they are, they're two completely different plants, even though they look very like each other. So one will sting you, one will not. So tanha and chanda are very like the, the stinging nettle and the dead nettle. So growing side by side and looking very like each other, but of a completely different nature. So just like with the dead, the dead, nettle, the dead nettle and the stinging nettle, you have to look closely and say, which one is that? You know, is it okay? Am I going to get stung if I walk through there or is it, is it safe? And so it just takes a lot of experience and scrutiny, care, careful attention, that yoni so manasikara, to, to recognize the difference between those two. So to continue. If meditation becomes another thing you have to do, 
and you feel guilty if you don't live up to your resolutions, you start pushing yourself without an awareness of what you're doing. Then life becomes quite dreary and depressing. But if you're putting a skillful kind of attention into your daily life, you'll find much of life sorry, you'll find much of daily life pleasant. That may not be so if you're caught up in your compulsions and obsessions. Acting with compulsiveness becomes a burden, a grind. And we drag ourselves, we drag ourselves around doing what we have to do in a heedless and negative way. However, we have this time for a retreat. We can sit and walk. We don't have a lot to do. The morning and evening chanting can be extremely pleasant for us when we're open to them. People are offering the food. The meal is quite a lovely thing. People are eating mindfully and quietly. When we're doing things out of habit and compulsion, they become a drag. A lot of things which are quite pleasant in themselves are no longer pleasant. We can't enjoy them when we're coming from compulsiveness, heedlessness and ambition. Those are the kind of driving forces that destroy the joy and the wonder of our lives. Uh, again, this is uh, following up this, the, these uh, different kinds of attitude that we, we can have. Sometimes, uh, and this is a, a very strong conditioning that we have uh, in the West and uh, around the world, but very, uh, um, uh, very, uh, very strong in the meditation community is a sense of you've taken up a practice and then you've, you've got to do it. You know, I've decided or my teacher told me. And, um, and so there's a kind of way that our sincerity or our interest can be co-opted by self-view, by, by that bhavatana, the desire to become bhavatana, the desire to get rid of. And out of a sense of faithfulness or sincerity, we feel I've got to do the practice. I've decided to, do the, to, to practice in this way. I've, I've got to get rid of my defilements. I've got to be a good monk. I've got to be a good nun. I've got to be a, a good practitioner. Yeah. And, uh, and so rather than the forms of monastic training and disciplines like mindfulness of breathing becoming something that um, uh, is there to serve the practice, it becomes this thing that we are a servant of. You know, that we become a servant uh, or a slave uh, uh, to this obligation. We, uh, we've de I've decided to do this, so I've got to do it. It's, it's a duty, it's a, an obligation, something that we're something, somehow forcing ourselves to do. And again, it can be, I'm not insulting that, but it, uh, or looking down on it, because it can often be very firmly based on you know, a noble aspiration you know, to, to say, fulfill the, uh, the faith that you have in the, in the Triple Gem and the Buddha's teachings. Uh, you want to do things really well. You want to be a good student. You want to follow the advice of the teacher. You want to be a good practitioner. All those things are, are very worthy and, and worthwhile, but when they get the uh, insidious, <laughs> the insidious uh, sort of uh, influence of, of self-view and conceit, uh, then it gets taken over. So I've got to do this. I must. I should. What will the teacher think of me? They, you know, they'll criticize me if I'm a bad meditator. I'll get scolded if I'm a bad monk. Uh, I'll, I'll get kicked out if I'm a bad anagarika. You know, I'm. I'm a, I'm a terrible meditator. I have to apologize for what, what, my, what my mind is doing to the atmosphere in the temple. Yeah. And so that we can ha easily, I'm not reading anybody's mind, by the way, just in case, <laughs> in case you're, you're wondering. It's just, but these are the ways that we, we can think. We, we, we uh, say, 
uh, are losing track of the fact that the the forms of the monastic life and the uh, commitment to the the practice of forms of living by the the, the eight precepts and being a, a, a noble upasika uh, upasika upasika they are um, co-opted and get lost and that we these forms are, are intended to serve and support the practice but we flip them around the self-view and conceit has a way of turning it around so it becomes this thing this this institution or this this um uh, this practice that that, that we have uh, put ourselves into a subservient position to it's we're there for it rather than it being there for us is a, another way of, of putting it so that uh, I, I feel it's uh, the, what Lumpur's saying here is really really significant in that respect is that you're remembering that anapanasati mindfulness of breathing it's a skillful means that's being adopted to help fulfill the mind's potential to be focused in, in the present moment to be paying attention to to reality it's not a, a, an obligation it's not like a a job that you're you're forced to uh, uh, to go to and that you're not getting paid for <laughs> you're kind of obligated to do this 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 mindfulness of breathing thing and so as he uh, as Lumpur says you know, if you uh, if your attitude is unskillful then it, it becomes and it becomes something that you have to do you have that sense of, of obligation or you're doing it grudgingly oh, oh no not another, not another meditation session oh no got to go to the temple again <laughs> there. oh no the cushion <laughs> yeah and it's some kind of horrible indentured uh, indentured labor as they say kind of a forced service that we we have to 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 do then look at your attitude turn the attention around and and look say, oh, where's this coming from and to recognize this this is all to serve the practice is all to, to based basically to liberate this heart it's there for me i'm not there for it it doesn't mean to encourage sort of rebelliousness or disrespect or, or um casualness but rather seeing uh, how uh, we can use skillful means in the most uh, supportive and helpful way and, and as uh, Longpoz says here, you know, if you if you are putting a skillful kind of attention into your daily life, you'll find much of daily life pleasant. So it's springtime in southern England. It's beautiful flowers in the garden. You have the winter irises, the daffodils, the primulas. The little uh, snowdrops are around. You know, the birds are singing, building their nests. Spring in England. How beautiful. But you might think, what's he talking about? This life is misery. It's so painful. It's so awful. Doesn't he realize the challenges I face? You know? But I'm not belittling that or insulting that or, or making fun of that. But noticing you know, if there's a skillful attitude, then the colors and the activity, the, 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 the rising greens of the spring can be really delightful, pleasing, and enjoyable. If the mind is, is say, taken up with unskillful attitudes and sense of uh, um, obsessive uh, self-based habits then notice that that wow this is it's amazing i can't even notice didn't even notice it was spring till he mentioned it yeah. so so wrapped up in uh, in me and my my problems and me and my uh, me and my wrongness or me and my shortcomings and so on so that it's noticing what the mind is doing with the moment and seeing that the attitude that is here is not fixed it can be worked with it's not a, a an absolute 
uh, an unchanging, immutable quality. It's that's why we practice is that you know these attitudes can change, and that if we are noticing, like, wow, look at that, my mind is so filled with I've, I've got to, I should, I must, and I I, I mustn't, I shouldn't, I can't, uh, that uh, I can't even enjoy the 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 dawn chorus. You know, I can't enjoy the the, the shape of a of a a, a, a primrose. You know, it's a, Look at that! Isn't that interesting? So, being interested in it, turning it into an interesting puzzle rather than a, you know, a problem that I've got to get rid of, so that uh, that turning the attention around, seeing what attitude is being brought, and then uh, consciously working with the attitude. And going back to one of the previous passages, where uh, Lumpur said, uh, uh, because you. Uh, Let's see. Um, uh, the mind is all-embracing, rather than specialising in a certain refinement of consciousness. Then you develop flexibility because you can concentrate your mind. This is where wisdom is needed for real development. It's through wisdom that we develop, not through willpower or controlling or manipulating environmental conditions. So there's a very famous uh, talk of uh, Lungtam Mahabua called "Wisdom Develops Samadhi." I think it was probably the very first of his Dhamma talks that was translated into English. I think back in 1963, uh, way, way back. And um, in that talk, it's uh, um, one of the, uh, the sort of most uh, highly respected and, and uh, helpful Dhamma teachings out of the forest tradition, I would say. And uh, actually, the Christian monk, Thomas Merton, referred to it as a spiritual masterpiece. And in that talk, uh, Lungtam Mahabua is describing how it's exactly the wisdom faculty, that quality of wise reflection, that helps to guide and steer uh, uh, the, the mind in the process of developing concentration. It's that kind of, uh, uh, say that, um, uh, what you might call being observant, noticing what the mind is doing and being, being aware of, you know, too tight, too loose, to uh, grasping, grasping too tight, pushing away uh, the the reactivity of the mind, the, the, what it likes, what it dislikes, noticing that and reflecting on that, using the wisdom faculty to be fully aware of the uh, the the ways the mind is is drifting off to sleep or getting too tight or or, or when it's really on track, and uh, consciously using the the wisdom and discernment faculty to guide and to uh, say refine to to sharpen the process of, of concentration so um, um, there are copies in the library I'm sure you can you can find it wisdom develops Samadhi uh, I think it was venerable Panuado the uh, his um, uh, elder English disciple his portrait is on, on the wall over there it was uh, I think it was venerable Panuado who did that uh, did that translation way back way back when but it's a um, it's exactly that wisdom quality, the, the wise reflection that we bring to the sense of, of attitude so that you notice, oh, the, the meditation is becoming a real grind. It's becoming a real burden. It, my mind is grudging it. I, I feel like I'm being, you know, the Ajahn is forcing me to meditate so that then uh, those feelings arise in all of us from time to time, maybe, <laughs> maybe a lot of the time. <laughs> but uh, rather than just believing in them, buying into them, bringing attention to them and being ready to, to work with them. That's what is uh, very much a part of the, the transformative process.
process. And the more that we use and cultivate that quality of, of wise reflection you know, and uh, investigation, then we are able to, to help those attitudes to change. And so that then you find that you can really, it's much easier to enjoy your life here. You're not just totally wrapped up in trying to make your mind be this way or that way or, or just completely obsessed with your you know, arguments with the monk next door or, um, you know, or what, you are, uh, or that, uh, that ache in the right-hand side of your back really means and whether it's going to lead to more medical problems and you know, the way the mind can pick up particular objects and get, get obsessive about them, uh, loving, hating, uh, worrying, um, so on and so forth, uh, we can notice that, see what the mind is doing and then challenge that to, uh, to help the attitude uh, to change. Any thoughts, questions, reflections? I'm, I'm unleashing a blizzard of words here, but don't be, don't be intimidated. No, okay. Sustaining your attention on the breathing really develops awareness. But when you get lost in thought or restlessness, that's all right too. Don't drive yourself. Don't be a slave driver or beat yourself with a whip. Drive yourself in a nasty way. Lead, guide, and train yourself, leading onwards. Guide yourself rather than driving and forcing yourself. Nibbana is a subtle realization of non-grasping. You can't drive yourself to Nibbana. That's the sure way of never realizing it. It's here and now. So, if you're driving yourself to Nibbana, you're always going far away from it, driving right over it. So that's worthy of consideration. <laughs> I'll read that again. You can't drive yourself to Nibbana. That's the sure way of never realizing it. It's here and now. So if you're driving yourself to Nibbana, you're always going far away from it, driving right over it. So the very mind that says, I gotta, I must, I should, is exactly the, the, the mind state that is, is uh, say, an obstacle to realizing that uh, here and now, the, uh, the pachupana, the... Uh, the ever-present quality of the Dhamma and the, the realization of, uh, of the Dhamma which brings the, the peace of Nibbāna. So it doesn't mean that there's no work to do, but the work that needs to be done, um, the effort that, that needs to be made, is the, the effort to, to awaken. And that, that effort, the work that's being done, that we use uh, practices like anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing, uh, as a skillful means to support, uh, you know, work is being done, but if that work is based on, on right effort, on, uh, on chanda, uh, then the, that uh, process of, of awakening, of, of being aware uh, and so realizing Dhamma, that, that brings that result uh, of uh, self-realization, of realizing the Dhamma here and now, yeah, that that work is actualized, but it's it's work that's enjoyable. It's peaceful. It's not uh, it's not tangled or or, uh, or uh, made tense by the the presence of conceit 
and, and self-view. It's it's work that's been done entirely free of any kind of selfing. One of the, the, the things that Lumpur says here that um, yeah, I feel is also is helpful, when you get lost in thought or restlessness, that's all right too. So um, to, to expand on that a little, I think will be helpful. So just sitting here in a temple or wherever you are meditating, in your, in your room, your kuti, or in the other places where we gather, just letting the mind wander in papancha, saying, oh, Ajahn Sumedha said letting... A, the getting lost in thought is fine. Yeah, that's a practice too. <laughs> that's uh, also known as wasting your time, uh, because it, you know that. You know, what, what he means here is that if during the process of aiming to be awake and uh, and uh, and aware and focusing the attention in the present or using the breath to support that, if the mind happens to get distracted and lost, don't beat yourself up about it. Rather than, uh, rather than. Just getting uh, you know, irritated and, and oh, I shouldn't! I got lost. I'm so awful. I've got to, I've got to concentrate. Got to concentrate, and turning the the presence of thinking into an enemy or a, a kind of brain disease or a, an intruder, but rather recognizing, wow, I was totally gone for about twenty minutes there. My goodness, <laughs> that was that was a lo that was a long trip. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, I got lost, uh, and uh, so. Uh, let go, begin again. So you recognize, yeah, there was distraction. The, the mind was, was literally, the word distraction comes from the Latin meaning dis and tracto, uh, which means pulled apart, so pulled in, in different directions. So that, um, uh, that has happened, that, okay, that distraction has happened. Okay, now, now the mind is aware, oh, the, that, was, that was distraction. And then, if it's not too intense, then that just that recognition is enough to bring it to an end. You say, okay, start again, bring the attention back to the body, refocus on, on the breathing, and one breath in, one breath out. And so um, rather than dwelling in self-hatred or how much of a failed meditator you are or uh, you wishing you were like somebody else who is always so poised and alert and and obviously undistracted like like you, just say, okay, that was 20 minutes off in another world, all right, <laughs> okay, begin again. So that's one part of it. Another aspect is sometimes, uh, and this can come after a time of being really, really focused or really, really peaceful, sometimes the, the, the kind of um, desire body, if you like, or the energy body, the, the, the sort of energetic habits influenced by body and mind, they just burst, especially springtime can be a particularly effective for this, just the... The, the energy, this is the surging green, uh, fertile energy of springtime, you know, kaboom, just uh, the whole get, thing gets sort of overcharged and the mind just blasts away and no amount of, oh, I'm supposed to be staying with the breath, aren't I? And you, you can't even get to the end of that thought before it's you know, raged off and burst into a different uh, fantasy or plan or memory or something. So sometimes it's like that. And... Um, uh, in that respect, yeah, uh, again, it's, it's rather like I used to ride horses when I was a kid, and sometimes uh, I don't know if uh, all of you uh, probably English is not the first language of many of you, but that when you uh, when you're riding a horse, there's a, a thing that the horse can do which is called bolting. So 
you can you can ride a horse very fast, like say uh, cantering or galloping, but it's still under your control. When a horse bolts, then it's galloping and it's completely out of the control of the rider. It's just going to go, and there's nothing that the rider can can do about it. And I've been on on horses when they have bolted, and it's kind of exciting. <laughs> But also, you know, exciting, terrifying, you know, because if you fall off at that speed, then you can really break several things. But um, sometimes the mind is just like that. It just bolts. And all you can do is just try and stay on top and not fall off and break anything. And that's that's what it's like. Uh, so um, when, uh, uh, in that, when the mind is like that, then it's good to remember, say, in the Satipatthana Sutta, when the Buddha talks about Chitanupasana, he says, knowing the, the concentrated mind is concentrated and the unconcentrated mind is unconcentrated. Knowing the, uh, the unscattered mind is scattered, sorry, the, the scattered mind is scattered and the unscattered mind is unscattered, these kind of things. So when the mind is really out of control like that and just blasting away, then to know, here we go, <laughs> the, the mind is really raging. And the mind that, uh, that which knows the raging isn't raging. So like the rider on top of the bolting horse knows we're bolting. <laughs> but uh, the, you know, it's the horse that's bolting, the rider is just is sitting still on the saddle, is just holding on. And in a similar way, the, the mind can be fully aware of the, the, uh, the thoughts being completely out of control. Or mental images, sometimes it's not verbal thinking, it can just be visionary images or, or mental images, just uh, pictures and, and sounds and memories just blasting away and there's nothing that will slow them down or stop them but the mind which is knowing that that that's that succession of images or those words or those thoughts it, it's not intrinsically tied to them so just uh, in that very simple teaching in the satipatthana sutta knowing that the, the unconcentrated mind is unconcentrated it's no in this moment the mind is not concentrated <laughs> this is this is radical scatteredness. And it's interesting that there's a peacefulness in that, that even as it's blasting away, the mind is like if you were in a, in a situation watching a film, you know, like a really active uh, kind of action adventure film or a, a kind of a, a, um, a, sort of a Marvel comics drama or something where there's all kinds of things flying through the air and bright colors and big objects and loud noises. You can be watching the movie and just knowing this is a movie. It's a, a loud, uh, loud, bright, colourful, noisy movie. But it, it's that which knows the movie isn't tied to the movie. It can it can look away. It's not intrinsically part of it. it. It can know it. It can receive it, but is not entangled or identified with it. So that uh, I feel that's also an extremely um, uh, helpful. Uh, you know, principle to be bearing in mind as he says don't be a slave driver or beat yourself with a whip drive yourself in a nasty way so again that's one of the ways that we think, try harder i'm not doing enough i should i'm sleeping more than two hours a night this is disgusting it's disgraceful yeah i've got to got to cut down you know <laughs> um i ate 12 mouthfuls of food you know for the yeah you know, uh, today that, that's awful that's awful i've got to reduce you know i've got to uh got to cut that down you know, the, these kind of intentions, I'm not belittling them, that they can be noble in terms of reducing sleep or reducing our excessive intake. And, 
The Dutanga practices incline, incline us towards learning to be comfortable without, but we can again make those sort of grim obliga obligations that we feel that we've, we uh, have to fulfill and make life com completely miserable for ourselves and make any kind of relaxation or enjoyment seem like a, like a crime. Like, I can't, I can't enjoy the daisies and the, and the primroses. It's like, no, 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 practice, practice, practice. Oh, look at that flower. Like, What's that? Oh, little iris are beautiful. No, stop it, stop it, stop it. Back to the, <laughs> back to the breath. You know, it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, again, there's a noble intention that, yes, we want to practice, but it's just a color, it's just a form, it's just a flower. The mind is drawn to the, the shape of a spring flower, the, the sense of the, the, the spring greenery. It's in the air. So we can notice it. Oh, look at that. And the mind was distracted by that flower. I have no idea what it's called, but it has a feeling of beauty. Okay, carry on. Back to my kuti. <laughs> and we don't have to, to make a problem out of it. So, last paragraph here. It's pretty heavy sometimes to burn up attachments in our mind. The holy life is a holocaust, a total burning, a burning up of self, of ignorance. A diamond is a symbol of the purity that comes from the holocaust, something that went through such fires that what was left was purity. And so that's why, in our life here, there has to be this willingness to burn away the self-views, the opinions, the desires, the restlessness, the greed, all of it, the whole of it, so that nothing but purity remains. Then, when there is purity, there is nobody, no thing. There's just that, suchness. And let go of that. More and more the path is just simply being here now, being with the way things are. There's nowhere to go, nothing to do, nothing to become, nothing to get rid of. Because of the Holocaust, there is no ignorance remaining, but only purity, clarity and intelligence. So the word Holocaust here, um, uh, it's a, actually comes from the Greek hollow, meaning all, and cost, C-A-U-S-T, meaning burning. So it literally means total burning. That's why Lumpur Sumato is uh, using it here. It's a, uh, uh, a total burning up of defilements, a burning up of, of self, really seeing the total transparency of, of self-view and conceit. That No, there isn't anything there. <laughs> it might really feel like there's a, a me here, an I, uh, and this uh, independent entity, but that's a, a, a perception. It's an illusory form. It's some uh, some pattern of uh, the experiential field that the mind is is very very heavily conditioned to believe in and to turn into something real. The I, me, mine, the, all of that. Uh, so when he says a total burning up of self, it's not talking about literally setting yourself on fire, but seeing through, using the, the light of wisdom to totally illuminate all feelings of, of I and me and mine, whether they are voiced uh, in terms of you know, the, the mind thinking, I, I am a monk or I am a human being or you know, I am Ajahn Amaro, or even if it's unvoiced, just that feeling of that when the mind isn't, isn't thinking, me the experiencer, me the doer, me the, the walker, me the meditator, 
me, the, the speaker, that it doesn't have to be turned into words. It's just that attitude of, I am the actor, the, the one who's doing. I'm the experiencer, the one who's, who's feeling, or I, the knower. That it's seeing completely through those. The, uh, and as Lumpur uses this image here, in that total burning, like a diamond is a carbon, uh, mostly from some trees and plants that's, that's uh, crushed under the weight uh, and pre under pressure from the movements of the earth and under heat and pressure, then what remains with, with that carbon in its most, uh, say, uh, pure or sort of reduced uh, in size, uh, crystallized form, you get a diamond. So it's a, a figurative way of speaking. But uh, uh, when the, the self-view and, and conceit is completely illuminated, completely uh, seen through, and that transparency is, is utterly... Uh, uh, apparent, then what remains is the Dhamma, or, the, or say the triple gem, <laughs> to use the the the, the uh, imagery of the gem. So the triple gem is, is what remains. So when self-view disappears or is, is seen through, what remains is the triple gem, wisdom, truth, and uh, and virtue. And so that, um, uh, again, as Lumpur puts it here, when there is purity, there is nobody, there is no thing, there's just that suchness and then let go of that <laughs> so any way that the mind forms a, a, a this here experiencing a that there that you know that's all to be let go of or seen through to be to be abandoned there's just as, as i like to put it there's just dhamma aware of its own nature you know that's all also the uh, as he says there's nobody there's no thing one of the ways that the the buddha talks about nibbana uh, and using the imagery uh, of the island, he says, you know, there is an island that you cannot go beyond. Uh, he says, uh, uh, it is a place of uh, no thingness. It is a place of non-possession. Akinchanang anadanang are the Pali words for that. Akinchanang and anadanang. It's a place of no thingness, no solid objects. And anadanang, non-possession, there's no subject to be an owner. There's no thing to be owned and no, no thing to own it. <laughs> the, like how could you own the Dhamma? You know, how, could, how could you own the sky? How could you own uh, the, uh, the force of gravity? Or you can uh, own the, uh, the light of the sun. It's, it's ridiculous. Owning doesn't apply. So that uh, that realization of, of Dhamma, uh, the... Uh, uh, the felt sense of which is what we call nibbana, then that's uh, the result of that that letting go. When the, that sense of self, nowhere to go, nothing to do, nothing to become, nothing to get rid of. It's like the dhamma has nowhere to go. The dhamma has nothing to do. The dhamma has nothing to become, and the dhamma has nothing to get rid of. And so that that burning away, that that total illumination uh, of the. Uh, the patterns of our, our experience, this body, this mind, this personality, this physical place, this community, this weird and wonderful human uh, condition that, that we are all a part of and uh, is say, the, the fabric for, uh, for this life, when that's seen through and see understood clearly without, without delusion, then, as he says, what remains, when there's no ignorance remaining, there's only purity clarity and intelligence any last thoughts questions comments venerable here please 
think so. I had a little, yeah. Yeah, it's working. Yeah, yeah you're good. Um, sometimes with the idea of completely letting go, uh, it can bring up a lot of fear. And if there's nothing there, what is it that's afraid? So could you say that last part again? If there's nothing there, what? If, if, there, is no, if there is no self, what produces the fear? Uh, well, I, I would say that, you know, uh, the Buddha never said there is no self, but the things that we um, tend to identify with, the body, the, you know, the, the mind identifies with the body or the personality, uh, you know, sensory experience. So the fear, as I've come to become acquainted with, it uh, arises mostly from the habits of attachment being challenged. So that... Um, that the thing, the, the the habits of I am the owner. This is my body, my mind, my personality, and so that the 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 degree to which the the mind is identified with things that it, it believes that it is or believes that it owns, then the this, that uh, the uh, realization of non-possession or that uh, this isn't mine or I, I I can't keep this, then the the ego-based or sort of self-based reaction is oh no this is a uh, this is a um this is a threat so that it's a, uh, i would say it's that uh, it's a an aspect of our conditioning of the habits of feeling that we are we are this or we own this or this is who and what we are then that manifests as fear and then what follows on from that is something to get away from the fear either to distract ourselves with following a desire or just going to sleep, you know, shutting down, pushing it away. But it's like a, an echo of the, the conditioning of self-view. And uh, my experience is that, I mean, these can be incredibly deeply rooted habits, but the more that the practice develops uh, and, uh, uh, and that's cl clearly seen through uh, and we, uh, we kind of, cultivate that insight into well this never really was mine in the first place and who is there here what is there here to do any owning anyhow and then we, the the heart becomes more and more comfortable with that and it's like oh how could anything how could i be losing that because it would never belong to me before uh, uh, at all oh so then that's a, a slow and steady process and it's what i think one of the great benefits of, of sangha life and the form that we have in a monastic community is that we have a social structure and a supportive social structure that re really helps that kind of letting go and uh, that kind of that realization to be to be formed but that's how I, I understand it it's really it's like an echo of the habits of attachment and and, uh, and identification and for myself say for example uh, i was very identified with being successful i really liked being praised and succeeding and so that uh, when I was a kid or when I was in, 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 at school and you, I would you know, pass exams or win races or whatever, and you're just so happy, so kind of wonderful and so, so important, so proud. But if I failed at something, I got a bad mark or I lost a race or you know, the team got beaten, <laughs> it was this kind of crushing um, experience. And seeing that that 
that uh, and I, as I came into monastic life, I could see <laughs> could see those same kind of habits. I wanted to succeed at being a you know, really good monk and being being um, being praised for, for getting things right and doing things well. And if I did things badly or got things wrong, then there was that same ha <laughs> ha, and that um, they uh, that kind of habit of uh, seeing that that was uh, really based thoroughly upon upon self view. And that the um, it, maybe it's not exactly the same as what you're asking about, but um, they I could see that oh that when when uh, that self sense is not affirmed, that I feel it's something terrible and awful. But if I if I reflect on that and see oh well yeah yeah uh, what what is a good monk anyway or, or uh, what what's so wonderful about being the best at this or or being able to chant the Padimokha without you know, more than three mistakes or something, like, who really cares? Or if you're getting conceited about some kind of monastic performance, you're a real idiot. <laughs> and so, uh, and then then reflecting in that way, and, they, oh, and then just seeing the relief that came from letting go of that conceited or, or self-centered view, then that was like, oh, look, you know, when you let go of that self-centered perspective, then... There is a there, there's a, a relief there as well, so uh, yeah, we're all different. But I would say um, that using the practice in whatever way you can to to bring the attention to notice how uh, when that sense of I and me and mine is challenged, either when it's thwarted <laughs> or when it's seen as as being uh, void or, or unimportant. Then say, oh look at that. rather than oh no, not that, you know, and then following a way of distraction or switching off or whatever, say to to turn the attention to that and say, oh look at that, you know that uh, that's really interesting, and so to cultivate that kind of curiosity, like wow, that was a strong reaction. <laughs> I really didn't like that. <laughs> that's really got me on the wobbles. Uh, then you that sense of being interested rather than intimidated or or um yeah or or, or just wanting to get away you know, wanting to sort of push it away and switch it off i said that's the most helpful way of, uh, of working with it okay i think that's enough for today <laughs>